Thanks, John, and everyone else. So uh, we're kicking off a brand new series. It's a series that a whole bunch of churches all over the country are, have worked through and are working through. And so we're joining them in this. It's called Who's Your One? And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be working through and joining with other churches as we uh, sort through uh, Who is Your One? And so um, we're glad that you're here. Man, I'm super glad that some of our students are back. Students, you want to give those guys a hand? Super glad y'all are back. Um, there's, there's more open seats when you're not here, which makes us sad, and so we're, we're glad that you're here. So um, as we start this new year off, um, I want to ask a question. Um, if, if we were to strip down everything in our lives as a church and as the people of God down to like what really, really matters, what would we be and what would we do? What will we be and what will we do? Have you ever thought about that? It's an appropriate time of the year to consider a question like that. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And uh, while you are finding your way there, um, here's a question for you to consider. When you think of the word Christian, what immediately pops into your mind? So you don't have to answer, but um, think about that for just a second. If you're having a hard time, we'll play a little, um, that little word association game, okay? And so maybe, maybe you can shout it out on the next few. So this will kind of get our brains going. So uh, when you think of, here's the word, you just tell me what you think, LSU fan, Tigers, all kinds of things, um, fanatical, crazy, you know, national champions, I mean, right? I mean, it's coming. So think of all kinds of things. What about um, Mardi Gras? Be, now, you don't have to answer all that. I totally get like maybe your hesitancy in that one. Um, if we wanted to maybe get a little dangerous today, we could go political, right? What about Bernie Sanders supporter? Socialist. You might have all kinds of stuff. Half the room was like, no, that's not very nice. The other half was like, that's funny. How about Donald Trump supporter? No, don't, don't say anything. Just don't. Just kind of leave it in your pocket. CrossFit fanatic. Fit, buff. They can jump on boxes like this tall. Isn't that crazy? How about Star Wars? Nerds. Nerds, there it is. So if that's you, just raise your hand up. You love Star Wars. So this guy over here thinks you're a nerd. So anyway, um, now that you warmed up, what about Christian? So depending on where you sit, kind of depending on your growing up and your circumstances, depending on whether you consider yourself a Christian, all sorts of different things may pop out. For some in the room, there's warm feelings and um, thoughts of authenticity and the salvation and um, the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus and community within the context of the church. For others, uh, and maybe in this room, but most certainly if we were going kind of person to person on the street, kind of playing a man on the street game, you would have some folks that say, no, I'm not a Christian. Or they might say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not this kind of Christian. You know what I mean? Or they would say, well, you know, my view of Christianity is that they are hypocritical, closed-minded, moralistic, arrogant jerks that think they're the only ones that have found the right way. Right? So you've got all kinds of perspectives out there. And I, I would imagine all kinds of perspectives on the concept of Christian 
even in a room of gathered people who claim Christ as Savior. So um, some of you today have, there's been a moment in your life where you recognize you're a sinner, you um, realized and recognized that Christ Jesus was the answer to your sinful hopelessness and you embraced Christ by faith, what he did on the cross for you and you trusted him to lead and guide your life. So there's a moment for you. Others, you talk about Christianity and you might say, well, I'm not even sure, like, I know I got baptized back then. I don't even remember where this whole thing started. Like, I mean, I just always remember just believing in Jesus. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Some, you might say, well, I'm a Christian because I'm an American, you know? So, I mean, there's all kinds of perspectives on Christianity out there, and even here in the church. So, interesting fact, did you know that the early Christians did not consider themselves Christian? Or they wouldn't have at least called themselves that. As a matter of fact, the word Christian was a derogatory term term used by the the non-believing, non-Christian community, basically to say, oh, those are those little Christs. Those are those people who follow after that fanatic, that that crazy person that that, um, we crucified, that everyone says maybe rose from the dead. That's those crazy people. They're the little Christs. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, the word Christian in the Bible is only used like three times. So the word, though, disciple that's in our text and um, is used some 280, one or two times just in the New Testament. And so this word Christian, while it's something we've certainly embraced um, to describe ourselves, it's not the way that the early church would have identified. Well, I'm a Christian. No, um, they would have identified themselves as um, disciples of Jesus Christ. So as we'll see, um, the concept of disciple actually exposes what I think is a more, uh, a fuller picture of what it means to actually genuinely be a Christian. The word Christian and the using of it, and I'm not suggesting we don't, but in the using of it and the adopting of it, we've lost some of the implications for what I think that it actually means to follow after Christ and to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. So uh, this morning we're going to explore that just a little bit. So uh, you actually today, this morning, the person sitting in your seat, may have been in the church your whole life, have embraced some version of Christianity that is, uh, that's a misconception, and you're walking life in the church, but you may or may not be a genuine disciple. It's a common thing, especially especially in the West, for people to be involved in the church, to have a cognitive like belief that Jesus is who that he says that he is. By the way, the devil believes that too. And to um, think, I'm a Christian. But the truth of the matter is there's some things up underneath this concept of disciple that helps us understand what it genuinely means to know and follow Christ. So we're going to get into the word this morning. I want to read it again just so that we are wrapping our minds around it. It's, we don't usually do that, but it's short. So let me do it again. This is uh, Matthew 4, 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. This is Jesus who's, who's doing the walking. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they're casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left 
their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their, uh, with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So that's our text for today. I don't know if you spent a lot of time thinking about this text. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this story maybe a thousand times. So it's, it's probably familiar to you. I don't know about you, but I've always thought it was a sort of a strange story, a little bit unusual. Some guy walks by and says, hey guys, leave your family, your friends, your business, everything that you know, and follow me. So I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm like, nope, no thanks, don't sign me up. So how did Jesus convince them? Was it like, going back to Star Wars, was it like sort of the Jedi mind trick, you shall follow me? And he does, I know your father. You know, I mean, kind of this weird sort of moment. Or was it this uh, power that he had? He said, follow me. And their hearts just came to life. They're like, yes, we'll follow. Um, I don't think it was really like that. Actually, the truth is, if you understand what's kind of up underneath the historical context of this particular text, it begins to make a lot of sense. So before we get into points today, like one, two, three, four, and five, we've got five of them coming here, here in a few minutes, let's gain a little better understanding of the historical context around this text. Did you know that all good little Jewish boys of that day went to Torah school? All of them. It wasn't one of these things where it was like when they turned two or three and they're like, should we send them to preschool or should we not send them to preschool? Which one should we send them to? It wasn't like that. If you were a good, good Jewish boy, you went to Torah school. And you spent time at Torah school learning the first five books of the Old Testament. It was your, it was your duty. It was what you did. By age 10, all young boys knew the Torah. So if you got any 10, 11, 12-year-olds, 9-year-olds, like by now, if you feel like you've learned a few things, by now you would have known the entire first five books of the Old Testament. So anybody feeling a little like behind on this? So they all know the Torah. And um, then they were given the option, some of them were given the option of sticking around and learning the rest of the Old Testament. And so they were chosen to do that, to stay. Some were chosen, some were not chosen. The ones who were not chosen returned home to work with their families in their family business, kind of like the guys that are fishing here in the story today. They're fishermen because they got to um, a certain age and they learned the Torah and they didn't really make the cut. So they got sent home and, and now they're smelly fishermen by the Sea of Galilee. So, you know, poor Peter, James, and you know, all these guys. At about age 17, if a boy wanted to go, to go on and make a career out of his religious studies, which by the way, totally flipping like what's normal today on their head. Did you know like the guy who has the religious studies was like the most revered guy in the room during that day? Man, today it's like you walk around in New Orleans and somebody says, what do you do? And you say, I'm a pastor. And they, they look at you and they're like, ooh, right? I mean, that's kind of how it works. But in that day, or on an airplane or wherever else you go, really. But in that day, if you at 17 were chosen for the next phase, you, you were something. Like you were moving on up, as they say. And so 
they wanted to make a career out of religious studies. So the 17-year-old, his next step was to find a rabbi he admired, and he would basically apply to become one of his disciples. So he would go, and he would sit at his feet, and the uh, rabbi would ask him a bunch of questions, and there would be a season where they would determine if he kind of made the cut, if he cut the mustard, however you want to say it. And at some point, he would be chosen or not chosen, sent to go be a fisherman or whatever, or stay around. And if he was chosen then he would become the rabbi's disciple, his Talmudim in Hebrew. He would become his follower. It'd be his guy. So he would sit at his feet. He would learn. He would follow. His life would be examined. And, and the truth is, the more he could emulate and become like the rabbi, the better disciple he would be. And um, not very many people got to do this. Um, the rabbis were incredibly picky when they chose a candidate or a disciple. When they were choosing someone, they had to believe that that person had the capacity to become just like them. Just like them. Even to the point of their mannerisms. Like copying them and walking life with them. So for several years, these young people or these Talmudim would follow their rabbis, imitating them in every way. The goal of a disciple was to be like the rabbi. Supposedly, the highest compliment that you could give a Talmud, the highest compliment you could give a disciple in those days was something like this. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. Like, I'm not sure that I would really consider that a compliment today, I would think if you said the dust of your rabbi was on me, I would think that I needed a shower, you know. <laughs> but in that day, what they meant was you are walking so closely, you are imitating so well, you're so close to the rabbi that when he walks and the dust kicks up, it's getting on you. So this was a compliment that you're so much like him that um, it's like the dust of his feet was upon you. So one more thing. In Jesus' day, there was a rare form of rabbi who possessed a characteristic that Jewish people um, uh, called uh, shmiha, which basically means authority. Now, that's a fun word. Can you say it with me? Say shmiha. No, it's, it's one of these sort of more guttural and loud words. So let's do it again, shmiha. Everybody together, shmiha. You know, it's... Its meaning necessitates that because it means authority. It's a powerful word. And so there were certain rabbis who possessed this power, this authority. They had a tendency to be uh, very rare. They were masters of the Torah and of the Old Testament. They had sort of a mystical aura about them. They had authority. Um, in, in such a way that they could give interpretations of texts that other even rabbis could not do. They were so close to God that they could even give new or unheard of insights concerning Scripture. In order to be considered a rabbi with shmiha, there had to be evidence you had done some miracles. So that's bar number one. And then finally, you had to be this... this uh, status had to be officially conferred upon you by two other rabbis with Shmiha who have done miracles, who have been conferred upon as well. So 
it took a lot to become one of these guys, to uh, rise to this standard. It's a pretty exclusive club. So you start out at five, and you're working your way through, and there's a cut, and you're working your way through, and there's a cut, and you're working your way through, and there's a cut, and then finally you make it, and it's like, but only a handful of you guys are going to be this, a rabbi with shmiha. And so it was very rare. Now back to Matthew 4. Here comes Jesus, who knows the Torah so well that we find him at age 12 teaching in the temple, even correcting the religious rulers. We have Jesus, who is known for saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Sounds like shmiha. People were consistently amazed by his authority. By his authority. Just a couple of chapters after chapter 4 and chapter 7, the text says that they were amazed because he t- taught um, them as one with what? Authority or one with shmiha. So throughout Jesus' ministry, people were saying things like, where did you get your shmiha? Where did you get your authority? Who gives you this authority? By what shmiha or authority are you doing this miracle or that miracle? And when this happens... Right there, uh, and when this happens, right there uh, before the account in Matthew 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness where John the Baptist, John the Baptist, the the camel skin wearing, locust and honey eating prophet preaching in the wilderness, that John the Baptist, the same John the Baptist we talked about over Christmas who was born of um, Elizabeth uh, prior to the birth of Jesus, um, Jesus went out and he spent a little bit of time with John the Baptist. And um, if anybody had shmiha in that day, it was John the Baptist. Like people saw that guy, they were flocking to him. He was baptizing, he was doing all kinds of stuff. He had a group of disciples. Everyone was like, yeah, John the Baptist, that guy. There was even like rumors about John the Baptist being other prophets reincarnate. Like this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, he tells everyone listening one day, Hey, there's somebody here in this crowd. And he points right to Jesus. He points right to Jesus. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoes, to unbuckle this guy's shoes, to deal with his, the laces of his shoes. And here's something crazy that happens. In that moment, the scriptures say that the sky opened up and A dove from heaven comes down and lights on Jesus' shoulders and God from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So does Jesus have shmiha? You know, he's healing the sick. John the Baptist has conferred. God the Father has conferred. If there's anyone with shmiha, it's Jesus. He has all authority and all power. And now we get to Matthew chapter 4, and here comes Rabbi Shmiha oozing Jesus walking down the street, and there's Simon, Peter, and Andrew who are fishermen. And the fact that, and what, what is the fact that they're fishermen even tell us? Like, they have not made the cut. Like, probably five years old, maybe 10 years old, somewhere in there, somebody said, nah, not you. Some kid from 
Galilee, who has a hard time speaking um, rightly, he has a really thick accent. He would have been like maybe from, you know, the trailer park around the corner. And he didn't get to make the cut. And here comes Jesus rolling through, walks by the fisherman, and he says, hey, follow me. The guy who hasn't cut, made the cut, the guys who are part of the B team or the C, D, E, F team. Ladies and gentlemen, before we really go any further today, I want to make sure that you know something. Wrap your mind around this. When Jesus assembled his force that he intended to use to radically transform and change the entire world, he did not go looking for the people who made the cut. He did not go looking for the A team. He barely went to go look for the B team. He actually went to the C, D, E, and F team, and he said, follow me. Jesus chose the B team. He skipped over all the A players and went straight for the F players. So the point is, of course, they wanted to know him. So oftentimes we think, we read the text, we think through this, this particular set of scriptures, and we like, how could they leave their dad? How could they leave their job? Right? I mean, that's how we've always thought of this text. But a, a rabbi with Shmiha just walked by, and he said, to a bunch of smelly fishermen, hey guys, I know some years ago you didn't make the cut, but you make my cut. Follow me. Follow me. Write this down. This is number one. Hopefully this speaks to your heart. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus does not choose the best. He chooses the willing. I love how Jesus reinforces this with his disciples. Just a few chapters after Matthew 4, in Matthew 11, uh, 9 through 11, um, it says that, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, John the Baptist, basically the greatest preacher, hands down, is the Matt Tipton paraphrase, the greatest that ever lived. Um, I'm going to tell you the truth about that. Um, the one who is the least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. I mean, can you imagine the impact of that statement on these guys? You smelly fisherman, you know that guy, John the Baptist, the weird one who's got all the followers, who's baptizing everybody and there's great power. He's got Shemiha. I'm telling you, the one that he says that uh, is greater than him, I'm telling you that you're greater than him. Like, that's encouraging. I mean, the least in the kingdom of heaven means that you know the least about the Bible. It means you have the least talent. The least means that you're the least eloquent. The least means that you have the least amount of spiritual gifts. You know, I don't mean to offend anyone here today, but someone in the room has the least. Somebody. It might be me. It might be you. But somebody in the room, according to world standards, has the least potential to be the hands and feet of God. But Scripture says that you, that person who's the very least, actually has the greatest potential. But what it rests on is whether or not you're willing. Jesus chose those fishermen. Jesus chose you and me. No offense, but if you're a disciple of Jesus here today, 
He chose you. By offense, I mean you're the least. Number two, write this down. He chose us. We didn't choose him. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a deep theological point about this. We can talk about it here in a second. But in the text, Jesus says to the fisherman, follow me. Like, just take it at face value. It says, follow me. We see here that the disciples didn't go chasing after him, but Jesus came by and he chose them. He called them to follow him. We see here that he chose them. No other, no other way around it. Why? As I explained, the normal way this was supposed to go down was uh, if you were the best in your class, if you applied to be a rabbi, if he, if he liked what he saw, if it all went down the way it was supposed to, then he'd choose you back. You chose to, to move forward in this process of following a rabbi, but it's somewhere in the process he would choose you back. Now, this selection gave them a great deal of confidence that the rabbi chose them. If they were struggling, they would say, ah, but my rabbi, he believes in me. He believes in me. I can do this. My rabbi chose me. But Jesus started the process back even further than a typical rabbi. They didn't even come and sit at his feet. He came seeking them when they were not even looking for him. Some of you, that's your story. You were out there doing your own thing and Jesus came for you. Man, how wonderful is his grace. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about this in the book of Ephesians. And he's not trying to unravel the mysteries of predestination. Instead, the Ephesians are facing opposition. They're facing suffering. And Paul, in order to encourage them, says that they can be confident because God has chosen them. And if he's chosen them, then he's going to see them through. If you're in Christ Jesus today, God is going to see you through. You can be confident of that. And it doesn't matter how big the obstacle, God is greater. Paul is saying, stop worrying about the obstacles and the pains and the difficulties that might come and start focusing on the Lord. He's the rabbi with Shmiha. Start focusing on him. Here's what Jesus says. I'll give you his words in uh, John 15, 16. Here's what uh, he says to his disciples. You did not choose me, I chose you. I appointed you that you might bear fruit. Bear fruit means that you're going to win other people to Jesus and your fruit is going to last and that you're not gonna be a, it's not gonna be a temporary thing. It's gonna be permanent. It's gonna be real fruit. It's gonna be eternal fruit. So what if you ask in my name? The Father's going to give it to you. There's gonna be fruit. And when Jesus says, I did not choose you did not choose me, but I chose you. His main point was not, hey guys, I'm a Calvinist. His main point in saying this is, I choose you. And what I have planned for you and purpose for you, I'm going to um, pursue in you. And I'm not going to let it drop off. And when you lack confidence in yourself, you should put confidence in my purposes in you. Because even if you falter, my purposes will never fail. They will never fail. So here's number three. Write this down. Number three, our primary calling is to be with him. To be with him. 
We get this all twisted because we think our primary calling is what we do for him. But the, the ultimate truth here is our primary calling is to be with Jesus. In the text, we see that our primary calling is to follow, excuse me, to be with him. Same thing. Notice exactly what he said. Follow me. Follow me. I like that. I like it a lot. I love it, actually. He did not tell them where they're going. He said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But he didn't say, we're going to go over to Capernaum, and we're going to head over to this place, and we're going to do this thing, and that's how we're going to kind of exercise this thing. No, that's not how it went at all. As a matter of fact, he just said, follow me. Come spend time with me. Walk life with me. Soak in every word that comes out of my mouth. Love me and be loved by me. I don't have a long time to spend on this one, but um, let me tell you, at Metairie Church, we offer opportunities for you to follow after Jesus. So here's particularly what I mean by that. We have Bible studies throughout the week. There's some on Sunday mornings. There's one that meets right here at nine o'clock. There's one that meets upstairs at nine o'clock, two adult studies. There's kids Bible studies at nine o'clock around our, our space here. Some down here, some upstairs. Opportunities for you to figure out as you pursue God in his word, how to follow Christ. There's Bible studies on Friday nights. There's Bible studies at different points in the week. There's a men's Bible study. There's a women's Bible study. There's all kinds of opportunities for you to gather with the body of Christ to pursue Christ Jesus, to sit at Jesus' feet in the one another called the church, the body of Christ, and to receive what it looks like to have the dust of Christ all over us. There really is no excuse for us. We have Bible studies. We have preaching on Sunday mornings. Periodically, we have special studies. We'll take a whole Saturday and explore a particular subject. A while back, Laura and Micah um, did a study related to how to study the Bible. If you really want to follow Jesus, you want Jesus. You want to, pos- you want to um, experience his shmiha in your life. Come get involved in the church. Come get involved in Bible study. Come get involved with these people, the body of Christ. Be present with Christ in the body of Christ as we seek out the word of Christ through his word. That's how you sit at his feet. You get present with his body and you listen to his word. And you have every opportunity just like the disciples did to do that. And let me tell you, I'm not trying to kick you in the shins here, but if you're not doing that, it's showing you do, you do, do not hunger to receive the shmiha and experience the shmiha of, of, of the creator of the world. You're happy to just kind of do it on your own. Let's not be those people. Seeking Christ is not a solo activity. It's a communal activity in the word of God. So let's do that. Let's get into the word Together, get into the Word on your own every single day. Then come together and talk about it and ask your questions and figure it all out and let the Spirit lead. If you're a disciple, you're going to be reading Scripture. You're going to be studying Scripture. You're going to be memorizing Scripture. You're going to read books about Scripture. You're going to listen to sermons on Scripture. You're going to, for crying out loud, turn on the radio and listen to a sermon every once in a while. You're going to saturate your whole life in the Word of God because to be in the Word of God is to be in Christ Jesus. 
To not be in the word of God is to not be in Christ Jesus. Not to experience his voice, to experience his encouragement, to experience his calling, to be convicted by the spirit, to become what he's called us to be. Do you want the dust of your rabbi to be all over you? Then you're going to have to have his word saturating you on the inside and the outside until it demonstrates all the, of your thinking and all of your, uh, dictates all of your thinking and all of your behavior. Until you think it and you talk it and you quote it. Um, when life cuts you, you bleed the Bible. Because listen, you cannot know Jesus more than you can know his word. I can't harp on this enough. Do you want the dust of your rabbi all over you? Then learn his word. You've got to learn his word in the context of community to, to know Christ and walk with him. Number four. Got a little fired up on that one. To follow him, we have to leave all. To follow him, we have to leave all. Not all except but all. The text says, goes on to say, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So immediately, that's time. That means we encounter Christ Jesus and immediately everything we know about repentance, we have to be responsible for in that immediately moment. And um, the text says immediately they left their boat and they left their father. Why do you think the author picked these two things to highlight? Well, because those represent the two most significant things in the human experience. The boat would mean like what you do in your life, like your career, your purpose. It's what you depend on to even take care of yourself and your family. And your father, in that culture especially, would represent the most significant relationship or relationships that you have. And Jesus says, in order to follow me, I got to take precedent over both the most significant relationships you have and all of your dreams concerning your life and your career. The truth is, most of us um, won't literally lose our father and mother over Jesus, but some might. There are those in our church family sitting in this room, who have felt the severe backlash of their surrender to Christ. If you have not, God has spared you at this point in your life from that. But let me tell you, Christ is, what, he's, what the word is seeking to say here is that Christ is above all else. And it might be your job, it might be your, your father, it might be your family, it might be um, something you're, you're passionate about, uh, something that, that you've just wrapped your life around for, for, for years and years and years and years. And Jesus is like, set that down, follow me. You're going to have moments in your life, whether it's happened yet or not, where you have to decide what holds the greatest sway over you. For example, like college students, glad you're back. I'm going to talk to you for a second. Your parent, your parent, uh, as you're kind of sorting through your summer plans and your life plans, they may not like what God calls you to do. 
As a matter of fact, God may call you to take a career path that looks totally different than what your parents would approve. But it's for the glory of Christ Jesus. And you'll have to decide, mom or dad, Jesus. Doesn't mean your parents aren't your parents. Doesn't mean you don't love them. But those are one, that's one of those decisions. God may call some of you college students to take a summer overseas in a foreign context that's dangerous for the sake of the gospel. With very real risks. And your parents say, no, you may not. And if you do, I will not pay the rest of your college education. And you've got to decide, is this what God is calling me to do? And if it is, you have to decide. The mission of God, the will of my mom and dad. And the right answer is the Lord. Middle school and high school students, there's only a handful of you in the room. But for you, teenager, in this town in particular, you're going to be the only one. You're going to be the only one who chooses to follow Jesus out of your whole set of friends. And you're going to get labeled. You're going to be that Jesus chick or something worse. You're going to have to decide, am I going to sit back and be intimidated? Or am I going to decide that Jesus has a larger presence in my life than these friends do? Some of you, in your business or your job, you're going to face the temptation to cut a corner. To do what everyone else does. But you're going to have to decide, am I going to be patient? Am I going to trust God? Am I going to do things His way? For some of you, it's going to be about whether or not you make more income or not. And you'll have to decide, am I going to choose the way of Christ Jesus? Or am I going to choose the simple life? The way of compromise? Scripture teaches in unequivocal terms that you give your first and your best back to Jesus through the church when you're his follower. Now, I've had a conversation about this particular um, concept with several people recently, discipleship conversations and even like new member conversations. But, um, you know, one of the best ways to know whether or not, and this is a simple way, one of the best ways to know whether or not you're giving your first and best is if you're in the habit of giving to the Lord here in the church. Now, this isn't a giving sermon. But God has given us the gift of giving to, to, to help our hearts. It's one of the things, disciplines that God's called us to do, to demonstrate that we are fully surrendered to His shmiha, His authority. So dip your finger in it. Typically, for most Christians, it starts around 10%. If you want some counsel on that, I actually had a young lady this week say, I need some counsel on this. I want to figure this out. This is an area the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me about. And I, want to get, I want to get on board. Praise God. It's something we need to obey the Lord in. You see, to follow Jesus means we subject everything. You subject everything in your life to His kingship. What's everything? It's everything. What's all? It's all. Everything to His kingship and His lordship. You forsake all that He has forbidden, and you pursue all that He has prescribed unconditionally. Put that down. Number five, 
This is the last one. Write this down. He commands us to reproduce. He commands us to spiritually reproduce. The text says, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Just like he uh, was a fisher of men, his followers would also become fishers of men. This was an essential part of what it meant to be a disciple. It's not something that just a few of us do. It's not something that the pastors do, maybe the lead team in our context do. It's something that each and every one of us does. There's no such thing, lean in on this one, there's no such thing as a non-producing Christian, reproducing Christian. Feel that in your heart. There's no such thing as a non-reproducing Christian. And you think, I know how you pastors do. You kind of overspeak everything just so that maybe we'll come up to 70%. Like, I know you think that. I know that's how people think in, in the seats. But just take maybe Jesus' word for it instead of mine. Let me show you. John, John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove, therefore, that you are my disciples. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Line. Step over it. So how are you going to prove that you're his disciples? Well, you're going to bear fruit spiritually. You're going to re reproduce spiritually, which means that if you are really his disciples, this is going to be a major part of your life. And if you're not reduce, reproducing spiritually, then it may be a good reason to evaluate where you stand before the Lord. Or it may be that this is a conviction that's been in your heart for a really long time. The Lord's calling you to begin to pull the trigger on. Metairie Church, Jesus tells his disciples to bear fruit in his famous great commission also. Therefore, go and make disciples. There's the imperative, there's the command of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In Greek, the words baptize and teach are participles that derive their force from the one controlling verb, make disciples, which means that everything we do grows out of the call to make disciples. Everything. Jesus summarizes his ministry in Luke 19 by saying, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If we are his disciples, we emulate what he came to do. That's how we summarize our lives, to seek and to offer the salvation of Christ to the lost. You have a job that brings in money whose purpose, if you are a Christian, is for you to go out and to seek and to save those who are lost. It's actually not to make money. That's a byproduct if you're a redeemed follower of Jesus Christ. In his book, Master Plan of Evangelism, so we have some seminary students in here. I'm pretty sure 100% of seminary students who have been there any amount of time have heard of this book. It's about this big, but it's like got a, it's got a, some powerful punches in it. Uh, little book, Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman said, When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism, nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do the job. Individual men and women are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something 
God's plan for discipleship is someone. And that someone is you. We want to see you become, by God's grace, a reproducing Christian this year. Hear that. If you're, if you're here, if you're a regular part of our church, we, and by we, I mean me, the other pastors and leaders in the church, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's Word. All those, all those people and voices, we, we want to see the body of Christ, not collectively, but the body of Christ in your seats, every single seat that claims to know and follow Christ, we want to see you become, by God's grace, a reproducing Christian this year. That's the point of this sermon series. Unapologetically, like we, we are calling, Scripture is calling you to, to lay down the rhythms of the past and to embrace following Jesus genuinely. And today, I want to call you to commit to it. Today, I'm drawing it. And I'm calling you to step across the line and to surrender your life to live in the shmiha of Jesus Christ and to follow him and relate to him and to do what he does and live how he lived. To be a Christian. Don't let it intimidate you. I know that's a scary thought. It's been sort of a punch today. Disciple making is simply teaching someone else to follow Jesus like you know and follow Jesus in the Spirit of God. Sometimes it might mean studying the Bible together. But even more than that, it's simply opening up your life to other people who do not know Jesus and living genuine Christianity in front of them and taking every opportunity as the Spirit leads to speak of the goodness of Christ Jesus and to teach. We can overcomplicate this, but the truth is it's building relationships with other people and being the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in their lives. So I have a few things I want to ask of you today, just in application. A couple things for you to do. First of all, if you're not already, get engaged in the church. I don't mean like find a spouse and get married in the church. Now, some of you are in the middle of doing that, um, and that's fine. But what I'm talking about is do not forsake the gathering of the body. Get involved, and not just on Sunday, dive in deep. Get engaged with the church. The very best way, you can come to worship, there's, a, there's community service things, all kinds of stuff, but the best way to get involved in the church is to commit to small group ministry. It's the best way. It's where the purposes and passions of the church are lived out best, and it's the best place for you to walk closest so that you might experience the dust off of Jesus' feet. Get involved beyond Sunday. Dive in deep in community. Have purposeful community in the church surrounded by the truth of the Word of God, learning the Word and learning to apply the Word to your life. That's the first thing. Um, there's tons of opportunities like we talked about earlier. But also, I want to ask you to identify your one. Now, you might have 10 
in your head, people that you think about and pray about that don't know Christ Jesus. But I'm not asking you for those 10 right now. I'm asking you, every person in the room, to identify one person that is in your life that does not know Jesus Christ. One person that you begin, can begin to pray for, that we can begin to pray for you concerning, and that you can begin to live more intentionally with for the sake of their redemption. You're one. A person that God's going to lead you to impact this year in one way or another by the power of the gospel. A person you're going to introduce to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know you can't control the outcome. As a matter of fact, um, I've shared the gospel a bunch of times, and a lot of people are like, nah, you can't control the outcome, but you can control the obedience. So choose one. Even now, your heart should begin to cry out, Lord, who would you have me choose? Who is the one for me this year? God, you should pray. God, will you please show me the one person? This, this year, I'm supposed to reproduce myself in spiritually. Metairie Church, can, can you imagine the impact to our community if each and every year, each and every one of us impacted one? By this time next year, there'd be a couple of hundred people hanging with us. Two years from now, there'd be some 400 people hanging with us. 800 people, 1,600 people. You can do math. I'm not going to go on. Neighborhoods would begin to shift. Cultures would begin to be redeemed. The power of God would be unleashed in our city, in our community, in our world. I've got my role, but I, I'm not the one that God's called to go out. I, I have my own responsibilities out there, but he's called every single one of us. So here's my question for you all right now. Um, it's kind of twofold. First of all, are you a disciple? Maybe you never understood what it looks like to be a disciple until today, but are you actually a disciple or are you just calling yourself a Christian? Have you committed to follow Jesus? Do you understand who it is that has called you? I mean, talk about a teacher with Shema, with authority. He's the one that's called you. He didn't just give you new insight. He spoke the wind and the waves and they obeyed. He commanded demons and they fled. He spoke to disease and, they were he and people were healed. He talked to people in the graves and they came out. They rose from the dead. By Him, all things exist. By His blood, we are redeemed. For His glory, we were created. According to His purpose, um, there is no rival. There is no equal. It's Jesus. Is He your Lord? Is He your King? Are you His disciple? If Jesus is who He says He is, then He deserves more than casual association and church attendance. He deserves total and complete abandonment. He deserves complete and utter adoration. Am I right? Am I right? Some of you need to repent of being Christians. Your cultural perspective on what Christianity is. Embrace what it means to follow Christ as his disciple. It's okay to call yourself a Christian, but not that kind of Christian. 
So if you've never become a disciple, a genuine Christian, are you ready to become a disciple? You know, you can pray something like this. Even now, Lord Jesus, I'm ready to follow and become your disciple. You can say it to him from your heart, even now. I'm ready, Jesus. I'm ready to become your disciple. Every part of my life, I surrender to you. All of it is yours unconditionally. I receive the gift of your forgiveness. If you've never received the gift of God's forgiveness, receive it right now. It's ready and waiting. I receive it right now, Lord. And now we pray, God, show us the one, the one that you would have us introduce to your son, Jesus. Maybe even now, their faces in your mind, their name. Why won't you pray that name to God now? God, help me. Help me to reproduce myself, really Christ in me, spiritually in this person this year. God, I commit to it. I commit to be a part of it. God, take advantage of the opportunities that I have to use me in this person's life. Father, today I pray that this year will be marked by seeing all of the people of Metairie Church, by seeing an army of them becoming reproducing disciple makers in our community and in their families and in their workplaces. I pray that you would give us your help. We pray by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to prepare to sing, I want to point out a couple of things. In your seat, there is a 30-day prayer guide. Once you identify the person that you are going to begin to, that you feel God is leading you to, we want you to start that prayer guide and begin to pray for them for the next 30 days. Write their name in the book. There's a second book there with a white border around the edge that's a 40-day devotional guide that we want you to begin tomorrow. Pick it up tomorrow. For the next 40 days, we're going to work through it together. Also on your chair, there is a bookmark with a tear-off, a blue tear-off that says, who's your one? If you know today who your one is, I want to invite you now to write that person's name on the card and while we sing, to come and put it on the stage here this morning. We'll give you an opportunity to do that again next week if you need a little more time to kind of think about it and pray about it. But we're asking you to make a firm and concrete commitment to aim your life at your one. Now also, if you're here today and you're like, I have been calling myself a Christian or not, and today I realize that I am not a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am not a genuine follower of Christ. And I prayed that prayer earlier, and uh, man, I just need some encouragement. I'm going to be standing right back here in the back. 
And uh, if you want to talk to somebody, I would love to talk to you. I would love that opportunity. Laura, are you still? Did Laura? She's back somewhere. Okay. Um, do you mind standing right back here? I just want to have a, a male and a female, just that I know I have confidence in that can kind of counsel with folks. And so thank you. So if anybody is surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ today, come, come, see, come see me or this fine young lady in the back. We'd love to take the opportunity to speak with you and pray with you. Um, this year is going to be a fantastic year. I'm praying for moments in front of us where we are out there in the front or here in front of everybody with a big tub or baptizing people that we prayed for throughout this year. That's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to do that work. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. God's going to do this. So let's sing together and respond to the Lord.